Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back, everyone, to Graveside Picnic. This disembodied voice that's coming to you through your headphones is none other than Carlo, or is it? Um, in any case, I am joined by another, perhaps spirit, who knows? Uh, Malcolm, otherwise known as Malkman, is here, is here with me to discuss the 1992 cult classic film, Candyman. Just don't say it five times, Malcolm. How you doing, man? Ooh, Ooh I'm <laughs> speaking from the realm of a college dorm room. <laughs> Seems appropriate given the the fact that a lot of this ha- a lot of the story ha- happens on a college campus. <laughs> also appropriate considering I'm taking ra- uh, classes on race and whatnot in Latin America. So oh. I've um I I've been thinking a lot about the you know dimensions of this film and other related media. So this would be an interesting discussion. Yeah. So um and I understand as I understand you had not seen this uh before now and like just recently you saw it for the first time is that correct that yes that is correct um i am i guess i should stay up front that i am not like unlike most of the guests here i am not a horror connoisseur or even that much of a sci-fi connoisseur mm-hmm. not that i'm prejudiced it's just not something i really gotten into like my expertise is more on like the process of stuff like animation and making comics, which sometimes delves into those genres. But this seemed like something I wanted to get into. And so I decided to, when you approached me um, in regards to making a podcast episode about this, I decided to watch the film Candyman on my laptop here in my dorm room. And um, it was certainly an interesting experience. I liked, uh, I, I figured I didn't think I would have a lot to say, but after thinking about it for a few days, I think this should be a interesting discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we could uh, tell you what, I'll go ahead and perhaps give it a brief summary because um truth be told there is like it's very it's a very simple story um in in what happens in the plot i think that uh however i think we could probably both agree that the sort of class and racial dimensions really really complicate this a lot and makes it much more profound um so i mean this is basically the story of helen lyle this um uh, this white professor, uh, I believe she's a professor at uh, Chicago University or something to that effect. Um, and this is, of course, set in Chicago. Um, and she's trying to do some research on uh, urban legends specifically. Uh, and so she's out there with, uh, you know, Helen Lyle is played by um, a very young Virginia Madsen, which I had not known is actually uh, related to Michael Madsen. <laughs> Of Reservoir Dogs and all these other uh, movies, fame, and um, and it a follows lot inter- a lot, uh, a lot co- of interesting people in this cast. Sorry to interrupt you there. No, no, I, you're you're absolutely correct. Like this is really interesting. Like also uh, a, a an interesting diversity of people. You know how people look. You know it doesn't. I know that we've probably. 
I've probably banged this drum a couple times already, but it bears repeating that uh, not everyone is like sort of uh, they don't look like they're an Instagram influencer, you know, or, you know, just a, a swole, you know, a juiced up dude or anything like that. It's just it feels like you're you're looking in on regular people, you know, um, which is good. Definitely. I mean, I mean, it, it, it definitely lends um, some some groundedness uh, to what becomes like this weird spiral of horror um, as Helen starts researching the legend of Candyman. And um, and so, I mean, if no one's ever heard of this before, uh, shame on you. It's been around for, for a while. Plus, the new movie uh, has probably uh, resurfaced all this stuff as well. And, you know, this is based on a Clive Barker uh, short story called The Forbidden, uh, where it's obviously different. It's set in Liverpool and, and has a lot of uh, more or less class and, and race uh, issues and segregation and whatnot. Um, the director of this, uh, his name is... Uh, Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose. Yes, I always get I, I get bogged down because I thought, oh, isn't that that old uh, interviewing guy? <laughs> that who we must never speak of ever again due nah. to some things he did. Yeah, yeah. It's it, well, is he still alive? Even I don't even remember now. But yeah, it, it, I don't I don't yeah. care about him. It doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, fuck that guy. Um, <laughs> In any case, so Helen uh, catches whiff of this urban legend and uh, you get like a sort of like as told by one of the students who is like from, I guess, an area that would have been straight from a John Hughes movie, which is hilarious, uh, with a sort of John Hughes um, a casting, right? Uh, you, you get uh, shit. What is uh, is it? Ted Raimi, uh, <laughs> Ted Raimi in a bad boy. Suddenly, like he's a motorcycle dude, you know, who's hanging out with. He's like the bad boy that's hanging out with the nice girl who's babysitting. And uh, so, you know, they they say Candyman five times in front of the mirror, and uh, and he's sent downstairs to go wait for her because she's she has a surprise for him, and then we get. You know, a scream and blood sort of seeping through the through the ceiling, and I guess dripping on him. So, um, not great. No, not a great. Uh, not a great scene. Uh, not a great end for the babysitter. Uh, right. But but it is sort of interesting to see it sort of filtered through what sort of a a predominantly white uh, upper middle class to wealthy uh, community would would think of it. Um, and in the process, Helen is sort of transcribing some some uh, recorded stuff on an incredibly ancient word processor. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I actually I actually identified it. I think it's word perfect, probably three That's because right. I'm old, folks. I'm old. What can I say? Um, hey, hey, I mean, hey, <laughs> I can relate in a way. Like I, I get shocked when people my age me being 25 have never seen like vhs tapes or wow. don't have any memory of them yeah i mean uh it's it's the speaking of rumor and uh innuendo and all that stuff people that uh apparently uh click on the little 3.5 hard, the floppy disk symbol but don't know what it that it's supposed to be a thing that existed you know that's just the that's just the save icon Uh, No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, that's in a way how people felt about the Internet. You were either a person who just saw the Internet as something that came to your house one day, or you're a person that just had the Internet as, like, a part of your life for forever. It's just, like, a natural part of life, like trees or whatever. Right, right. No, you, I think you're right. You, you know, you just made me think like what, what happens to Candyman when the internet comes to, <laughs> comes to the, to the project over in Cabrini Green. Um, uh, he's going to turn into Slenderman. I mean, well, yeah. Uh, if only, if only we still had uh, uh, Satoshi Kon, he'd, he'd 
do something about that. Mm. Um, yeah. So she go she ends up going with uh, her friend Bernadette, played by the excellent. Uh, I don't know if it's Cassie or Casey Lemons, uh, who was also like um, in. It's uh, Casey uh, Lemons. It's Casey. Okay, thanks. Um, who's also you know a standout performance in Silence of the Lambs, which is where I I definitely recognized her from. Um, they go to the Karini Green because that's where you know she manages to sort of winnow out something that happened for real. Uh, you know, she's gotten closer to the friends of friends and gotten to someone that knew someone close enough in the projects over there that uh, basically called 911. No one ever came, and uh, the the person she was calling 911 for just died. They found her dead. Um, split open and so uh, she goes to to Cabrini Green and of course they're they're you know they're accosted by some some you know younger men uh, it's implied that they're drug dealers or p- gang members or something to that effect mm-hmm. uh, but but they they pass through just fine they you know basically the guys just sort of whistle and, and warn ahead that <laughs> that they're they're cops basically and uh, they do actually end up finding, after looking through the um, the abandoned apartment where the crime was supposed to have happened, uh, they actually meet up with. Uh, it was Anne Marie who is who is the character here, who sort of like uh, uh, invites them in. They have a couple of words with her. They talk about the the situation. She tells them straight up, you know, like the primary source of the story tells them that yeah that she called nine nine one one yeah they never came and you know the the her neighbor was dead you know and uh as a result uh i freak and now i got mixed up i don't remember if it's after this that helen goes back and she and bernadette are in the bathroom uh, and they're looking at the mirror and they, they say the name five times, but it takes a long time before anything really happens. Actually, I do believe it's before this scene, before she goes to Cabrini Green itself. Yeah, um, it is before that scene. Yeah, yeah, because that's where, yeah, you're absolutely right, because that's what establishes the the turn here where she goes into, uh, like, it's the public bathrooms to sort of because she's following a lead that uh shit what is the name of the little kid is it is it aaron Uh, Um, i am blanking on his name jake jake that's what it is okay yeah uh (laughs) a very solemn jake uh he does not smile throughout this uh and he tells her that there was some sort of incident that happened in in the bathrooms, and she goes down there to look, and yeah, you know, it's just like it's awful. It's it's a public bathroom after all, but that's where uh, one of the, uh, I guess, some neighborhood tough shows up, holding holding a hook in his hand instead of actually having a hook for a hand, as in the the story, and you know basically threatens her and impersonates the Candyman. And uh, she is able to get her, get the police to uh, come rescue her from there. And like after that, it starts to spiral, right? Because it's she wait. She later wakes up. Uh, I forget exactly how it happens, but she later wakes up back in Anne Marie's apartment with the the her dog's head chopped off, and she right. of course. She's- she she's going to her car in the parking that's, lot. That's right. And that's right. She's about to get the report finalized after talking with the police about the people that attacked her, and that's when Candyman shows up and puts her into a trance with his voice, and that's how she wakes up in the apartment with, you know, all the blood all over her. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That's exactly you're exactly right. That's the first physical manifestation of Candyman, and uh, 
And I mean, yeah, the, uh, Tony, is it Tony Todd? Yes, Tony yes, Todd, Todd is, he's just such a presence in this entire movie. Uh, I mean, we, we hear him in a voiceover from the beginning, but you don't ever see him and uh, until this point and it's really it's really sort of an interesting uh, way to do it because it's sort of like an over the shoulder shot not focused on him he's just sort of like a presence back in the background just standing there right and, and of course he's dressed in that amazing coat i mean i love that coat it's amazing uh but it's yeah you're right it's certainly a very vivid image um that that w- people will think about and remember this specifically when talking about horror movies, like that entire setup. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, and then when he sort of uh, he sort of like straightens out his uh, his right arm, and you see the hook, and it's just like just sort of like a bunch of gore uh, where his wrist would have been. And like, there's, it's just a, such a great, um, also such a great design, which um, I was reading up on this. And apparently uh, initially they wanted to go with like a, I guess like a prosthetic arm of some sort, you know, like a, a prosthetic in FX terms um, where he, it would be mechanically controlled and sort of at the last minute they decided well just make a hook just just put a hook in there and then the the interesting details for me are the fact that you know it, it it's sort of covered in like some you know some movie gore you know like just gross bloody stump stuff and then there's like these weird s- screws or nails just sort of like sticking out uh, at odd angles and it's like this just like a dark like a black metal hook it does not look pleasant at all it's just like it's not like a not like a um a um what you i a what you would call like a a pirate's hook hand or anything like that it's like really it looks like something that you'd use like in a foundry or something yeah like frank it's like frankenstein monstered on there basically yeah yeah it, i mean it's a great it's some great details because of that because then it, it sort of feeds into the you know what we've heard which is that you know they basically the apparition is supposed to be this uh this guy that died uh back in you know the 19th century or whatever and uh, they sawed off his his hand and just jammed a hook in, his, in the stump and you know i'm not trying to be unpleasant or whatever i mean it is it is uh, the the month to do that but um yeah yeah i'm not trying to be morbid but uh, that's the that's the story as it goes and it it sort of shows in just the the way that the hook looks uh it's just i i just feel like it's one of those little details that really sells it you know definitely um, going but, on from if if yeah, i could ahead. um take over going on from here she basically gets arrested um in the apartment of the she of the apartment of where she met the lady and her baby and she basically goes and gets tried for like you know murder of the dog the baby and also trying to kill the mother and it basically takes this interesting turn where like she, of course, gets bailed out of jail thanks to her husband and, you know, obviously them having, being a part of the high, upper middle class. And it is, and it's basically going through the psychology of like, is this, is this lady crazy or not? What, what she got herself into and like, what is she necessarily you know, what has he necessarily done to, like, deserve this is at the point where the audience is sinking. And it goes from there where, like, it's spirals where, like, you know, Candyman, you know, she tries to do it again just to see if she's crazy or not, and Candyman shows up again. And unfortunately, her her friend shows up at that exact moment and she gets murdered there too and it's that point when her husband like basically puts her in an insane asylum and she ends up being there for like a month and 
I guess we'll get into this later, but this is where like the themes and the um, I guess just like the overall like tone and ideas of this movie sort of like go in different directions, and maybe that's where this isn't going to be a perfect film, but it's definitely certainly an interesting film mm-hmm. as like you know kid. When she's talking with the psychiatrist after spending in the insane asylum for a month, she says Candyman again five times in the mirror. Um, Candyman kills the kills the kills the psychiatrist in a very, you know, unfortunate scene. Um, we didn't well, have and, to do him and, like that. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, like that was uh, completely, uh, you know, sort of like instigated by his, her, her, her psychiatrist who is trying, he, if I'm remembering correctly, he was actually working on her defense team, uh, basically to see if she was able to stand trial, uh, if she was fit, right, mentally. And uh, he forces her to sort of say it, right? To, to oh, you, you know, we'll, we'll say it right now, you know. Um, and, you know, th- to be fair, you know, as a uh, some sort of person of science, he would probably be like, well, it, obviously she can't say it because it's, nothing's going to happen. So he forces her to do it and she does it. And, <laughs> well, wouldn't you know, <laughs> he does yeah. actually, uh, what is it, uh, splits him from groin to gullet, you know, as as they say in the beginning. Uh, and then he sort of jumps backwards out the window and disappears again. Uh, it, it's so I, I did want to touch real quickly before we, we continue. It's really interesting to me um, on rewatching this, the intersection between the fact that Candyman is out there trying to preserve uh, his status as like a rumor and something like a, a, a thing that's spread by word of mouth. And the fact that that his interest in keeping himself sort of relevant and alive, immortal in that sense, uh, then runs contrary to Helen's reputation, which is what he's basically, he's killing her entire reputation um, at, at first in small, in small ways, but now she's like accused of several murders by now. Right. It's, it's interesting because I guess you could like, I know this is like a word that many of your listeners are probably here thinking, think, hearing, but it's definitely like a case of trauma, at least for a spirit, because this is obviously an instance, and I guess just trying to mirror like, you know, people growing up in the hood, or at least an unsafe environment. And basically, when you get, and obviously, we learn later that this Candyman was actually a man who was obviously, you know, attacked and basically murdered by like a mom you know for being you know deformed with like a hook and whatnot and this idea that he is like this legend that goes around like killing people who say his name five times in the mirror like this bloody mary type uh legend is pretty interesting in that that is basically him as a spirit, the only thing that he has. And obviously, he's trying to stop um, this reporter from this student from, you know, reporting it and just basically saying it's a legend that doesn't exist because it's like the only thing that he has. And obviously, he's going out of his way to go and... And, ba- and basically just show her that he is definitely real and he's going to destroy everything that she loves um, so that maybe he could also have a companion, which is where this where it goes from being like a commentary on like unchecked and, you know, crime that's left alone in like the inner city or um, the lesser parts of urban neighborhood to 
having an infatuation with someone that they you with that you can't possibly get because of your background. Mm. And and I've heard certain people like make certain comments about that, like Martin Goodwin of the Double Toasted Review podcast, who I regularly listen to, said that he doesn't like how all that commentary just gets thrown out the window at, um, at the end for it just to be like, I'm going to go get this white woman um, with Candyman. But, you know, now that, I'm, now that I'm talking about this now, I think it's kind of like fascinatingly artistic in a way that like maybe his intention was like um, to show how really is and how like this is his community and this is his domain and you have no right to trespass on it. And then it turns into like basically a love story, which is how they pitched it at one point of Candyman being infatuated with this girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was really uh, sort of maybe not taken aback, but I was really um, – it really intrigued me because Tony Todd, when he was uh, sort of uh, so selected for the role, because uh, believe it or not, uh, apparently Eddie Murphy was the first uh, choice. Oh yeah, uh, I read about that. It's so it's so wild. I'm just like thinking. It's like one of those what if what if Will Smith had been Neo moments where you're like, wait, what? How would have that? I mean, how would that have worked? Yeah, uh, and, well, and especially well, like in. In 92, where Eddie Murphy still is very much, you know, sort of uh, a presence in comedy and whatnot. Uh, But I'm sorry, you were going to say? Oh, nothing. I was just going to say that, like, at that point, at once, like, a person like Eddie Murphy gets into a project, it's like any star, really. It just becomes a vehicle for that star specifically. And... Mm -hmm the rest of the cast just easily becomes background noise. Whereas opposed yeah. to like, not, not necessarily like, not a lot of these people are not exactly like unknown unknown. Uh, it's not like completely indie, but it definitely, because they're not like big names that everyone in the world has heard of, it definitely gives the chance for the movie to stand on its own without any bias coming from anyone about hatred or love for a certain actor or actress. And they get to look at the movie based on not just the actor's performance, but the other qualities. Like the soundtrack in this movie is actually pretty, pretty good. It's not exactly like scary, but it definitely hits that eerie note. Like I I actually have to go and listen to it. Because I remember it really good watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a it's a Philip Glass like they got Philip Glass to do the uh, the soundtrack, and it's really sort of it's 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 sort of a stripped down like in most Philip Glass type stuff. It's just like you know very sort of simple tunes or stripped down tunes that are just just uh, I feel like. Uh, performed with like this precision that he brings to it and it really lends um like there's that little uh music box uh you know thing that it's it uh brings in every once in a while which lends like this almost unreal uh fairy tale uh feeling to you know whatever's happening um the the slow pan over like at the beginning as credits were rolling where you have the slow pan over like the chicago uh highways and whatnot um with like this almost a a muted choir music it's just really fascinating just sort of mesmerizing uh in a way that i guess is supposed to evoke the same type of hypnotic feeling that helen feels uh whenever Candyman's around right um, yeah, definitely. But it it doesn't. It's also like not trying to get in the way of the of whatever's happening on screen, which is a plus. Yeah, it's subtle enough where it's not distracting to the point where you're not acknowledging the, you know, 
basically the dialogue or what's happening on screen. Like it's not Han- it's basically not Hans Zimmer is what we're saying. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I I keep on I, I crave those gigantic blasts of sound. What are you talking about? I mean, it's it's fine the first five times you hear it, but then you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I so uh, going back to Tony Todd had sort of. Um, mentioned and, and uh, tying it back to the music uh he he sort of mentioned that uh he was really always had always been interested in doing a version of the phantom of the opera uh and i feel like that is you know uh definitely something that is it's not really super uh, on the nose in this but once you you hear that, you go, oh, yeah, that's that's sort of what this is, you know, and he's sort of trying to close avenues to Helen, uh, you know, rather than out him and make him wither away. Because, you know, once you once you sort of pierce the bubble of mystery around sort of like a, a rumor or, or like an urban legend, well, then guess what? You know, that urban legend loses some power and he doesn't, he's not interested in that. And so he's just basically closing doors for her so that she will join him. Or at least he's, he asks her to be his victim. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting prospect. It's basically like, it's, it's basically like, um, you know how Guillermo del Toro said that. He went when he saw the creature from the Black Lagoon. He basically said, "I wonder what it would be like, you know, if like the the girl willingly went with like the sea monster." Mm-hmm. Uh, this right. is like this is basically like a more a more screwed up Beauty and the Beast, where like it's like you know how those like clickbait articles about how like Disney's Beauty and the Beast is about Stockholm syndrome or whatever. Well, this <laughs> right. is well, this is that if it was real. Right, right. I, I do. I think I agree with you on that um, because he's slowly sort of, yeah, he's forcing her into, you know, choosing to become, you know, like, like him, to become immortal like him. Uh, and, you know, how do you convince someone to sort of become your murder victim, right? And, you know, he's so far, he's doing a good job. He's like <laughs> killing everyone that she she uh, she cares about uh, left and right. So didn't have to kill uh, the husband, though. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, but that's yeah, that's the that's the final <laughs> the final scene. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, that, I, I do think that that's something that perhaps uh, Candyman would not be at all like it's not interesting to him. Uh, in part, uh, and and that may be in part because Helen herself is not really in love with her husband. She sort of depends on him, but he's like the few times that you get him get him on screen, he's just like he's, he's just like actually smi- with, with us with one of his students. Yeah, I mean, he's just also like a slimy slimy dude you know it's just like she comes back from the from again from month being committed in the mental institution she's you know she she escapes uh and and goes back to the apartment and you know there's the student uh you know painting based on the swatches that she and her and and uh helen's husband have picked out and you're like what the fuck i mean he's he's not he's not He's not a good guy and uh, not like in the capital E evil guy, but he's just not a, a good person for her. And right. I, I get it. It's like the boyfriend from Miss Midsummer, which I have yet to see, but <laughs> I've been spoiled enough already. So. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. I mean, he, they're, they're sort of bad people, but in a very human flawed way. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're capital E evil, you know, that nor yeah, does which, that mean 
that anyone does deserves to die, but you know that this is a horror film, so yeah, it's it's refreshing to be honest. From based of um, just judging from what I've been seeing in the past couple of days, my immediate intake. Yeah, I mean, um, so should uh, we get to how this film ends? Go for it. Yeah, let's do it. So basically, one of the big. Uh, one of the big, like, you know, conflicts of this movie is Helen trying to figure out what the ba- where the baby is, mostly to clear her name, but also caring about, like, you know, this baby, because you don't want this baby to die. Like, that'd be even too much, even for, like, a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And, so and so when she goes back to the projects and goes to that same area where that lady was was killed, reported to be killed. She goes and sees the whole story about how Candyman came to be up on the wall be, um, to where Candyman told her to go. And mm-hmm. she sees how, like, you know, she, he's, she's, he's infatuated with her because he was in love with a woman just, just like her uh, back when he was alive. And... You know the 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 climax of this movie is her fight hearing the baby under this pile of rubble, at um that's in like the front of where everyone lives, and so she goes in it to get the baby, and what you know who sees it? Jake, and she happens to be holding a hook as she's going in, and Jake thinks it's Candyman, and so somehow. This eight-year-old kid is able to get like the entire neighborhood to come down and with like torches and like tools to go and burn down this heap of garbage that they believe Candyman is to be. Um, don't question it too much, but she she finds the baby, but she's like burning in there, and you know Candyman comes out and it's basically like stay with me. You don't have anything left, but he she manages to stab her and stab him and get the baby out in time. But she's been burnt to a crisp, basically. And so, like, there comes the funeral with, you know, her remaining um, friends and the husband. And the whole neighborhood comes out to go and pay her respects by throwing down the cane that used to belong to Candyman. Um, since, you know, she inadvertently helped get rid of them and saved the baby as well. And, you know, Candyman, I guess, is dead. Don't know how exactly you kill a spirit, which opens up a whole other can of worms. But <laughs> the finale of this movie is... Helen's husband clearly not being happy with his, you know, love choices with the student. And he's clearly depressed because he misses Helen. And then I guess in a mo- and I guess he's sitting on the toilet all depressed, just repeating his name, Helen, Helen. And then he goes and looks into the mirror and says his says her name a few more times. And what do you know who shows up? The spirit of Helen out to, you know, get give her husband what's give her ex-husband what's coming to him. And and then the student comes in, finds the guy buried in a pool of blood, and the cycle continues. Uh, mm-hmm. Candyman got what he wanted in a way. Well I it's it's interesting because um I I do agree with your point regarding like I don't I don't think that the that Candyman himself was was killed. It's just simply that Helen has now assumed the new sort of position of that, or perhaps she's now a new version of him I that like now stalks. Yeah, like she's she's now stalking like the <laughs> the the middle upper classes, uh, and he's he stays a uh, you know he's he's got his own beat down in the down near Cabrini Green, you know, uh, uh, but yeah, uh, it's interesting because that uh, perspective of the idea of how violence is cyclical and will repeat. Um, 
is sort of put, you know, right there with a bow on it at the end, uh, because she now is the new sort of incarnation of that. And um, I would also say that uh, in a lot of, uh, because this is a, this is an adaptation of a Clive Barker uh, story, uh, and in through throughout his books as well, there's always this. He's got this preoccupation of uh, a surrounding sort of transcendence and becoming a new, like, transforming into a new thing. Uh, be it sort of like an immortal, uh, some sort of immortal creature or a monster or whatever, uh, but you have a new existence. Uh, and I feel like that's what's on display here, where, you know, uh, through the pain and, you know, the uh, idea at the beginning of this film that uh, the Candyman says, you know, uh, what is it? But what is what is uh, what is blood uh, for except to be shed or something to that effect? And, you know, if you apparently the, the idea here being that if there's enough bloodshed, uh, in your name, you then become sort of like this rumor as well, you know, like the Candyman himself. I'm being the horror novice that I am. I'm currently looking at Clive Barker's Wikipedia because, um, you know, I don't know much about the guy. And I'm seeing he his fiction has been adapted into the Hellraiser series, which has heightened my interest because... I've heard those films are good and seeing this connection, I'm going to have to check these films out sometime soon. Uh, also Nightbreed. Nightbreed. I'll yeah. put it, I'll put it on my watch list on Letterboxd. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think he's, uh, a lot of his stories are, I don't know if they're, they're adapted, uh, in ways that don't feel like his stories anymore, but they're always interesting. And I do think that Hellraiser is a great, uh, a great example of a, of a story that's probably, uh, you know, it's, it's almost legendary by now, the movie, but, you know, I, I think that the story itself is, is well done enough. And, and I do think that there's, they're sort of the same, but also different. They, they branch off in different directions. Um, but yeah, in any case, uh, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend you know just checking whatever Clive Barker adaptations are out there, because you know at the very least you're going to get some weird concepts that you don't really see a lot of anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, I guess can we talk about the bees? <laughs> yes, we can talk about the bees and what they could possibly represent. I guess you want to get to the fun fact about how before taking the role, the actor Tony of Candyman, Tony Todd said that he, he would like a thousand dollars for every time he got stung by one of them in production. Uh And he got stung a total of 23 times. Meaning at that time in 1992, he Earned a hefty pay, I must say. Yeah, I mean, uh, even even nowadays, like twenty three thousand dollars is nothing to sneeze at. Um, you know, uh, I will say that uh, I, I I definitely love the the visuals where like he will where he opens the coat and it's like his entire body is just full of bees, just covered in them. <laughs> Uh, it's just such a, a weird and off, like upsetting image, but also something that's just like so cool. It really is. Uh, I, I don't know what, um, and I don't want to, because I know that that's part of the trailer for the new film. Uh, and I haven't seen it yet because I wanted to, to talk about this one first, but, um, you know, they, they do have like that thing about like it's the whole hive or whatever. And I don't know if I'm thinking of that trailer and sort of transposing that idea onto this. But I also think along the lines of like, uh, uh, you know, how does a how does a hive apart from the, the urban legend aspects of it? Like, how does a hive of bees communicate? Right. And it's sort of like with this weird, you know, it, it communicates uh in ways that we we cannot pick up 
uh, right? And but they can come and swarm all over you, and that's it. You're dead, or maybe not dead, but definitely stung a whole bunch, you know. And you could be dead. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not like all of them are gonna sting you. Like, um, little little known fact question mark if a bee stings you they will die so mm-hmm. they, they i'm pretty sure they want that sting to be special for someone well i i do think that that sort of wraps back back around to uh the Candyman's uh like infatuation with helen theme right his sting needs to be special because maybe if he tries to make her his victim he sort of needs to pass on whatever his energy is to her. I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it makes me, now that I say that, it makes me think of the entire idea behind this and sort of what makes Helen um, get into all this trouble is the fact that she is basically trying to sort of shoehorn herself into uh, sort of I, I hesitate to say appropriating uh, culture but it, it sort of is that right because she's trying to go in and learn about the Candyman without ever being threatened by the Candyman yeah I get what you're saying she basically is going in she maybe finds this story interesting and maybe she sympathizes with what that mother was going through to a certain point but at the end of the day she's mainly writing a paper um to put herself on the map in the journal journalism sphere and just to one up that um british guy she was talking with that had hair from a glam rock band for some reason <laughs> yes, yes, and and obviously English teeth. Uh, it's so I, I couldn't stop looking at the guy's teeth every time he talked in that scene. God, um, almost as disturbing as the Candyman himself, you know. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, you're you're right. I mean, she's trying to basically uh, take this sort of story of. Uh, the original story being, you know, a story of pain and 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 suffering uh, at the hands of mob justice for the crime of being, you know, a black man being in love with a white woman back in the 1850s or whatever. Um, and then on top of that, like the echoes that have rippled outward from that uh, sort of violence visited upon him that then have rippled outward to affect the community where, you know, he was killed, you know, so he sort of, he sort of can't, I guess, can't help himself in a certain sense f- from, I guess, paying that pain forward in some way, uh, which is not, you know, I don't think it's supposed to be uh, aspirational. It's not supposed to make anyone feel like great about it. Uh, it's just, it is what it is, right? Um, right. I mean, and- it's not, oh, I was just going to say it wasn't going to sugarcoat it. But while we're on this, um, I'll let you finish. We, I, I was just going to, uh, yeah, just to finish real quick. And then Helen is going in to just make that into, like you said, uh, make her name. Uh, in academia or whatever journalism or write a book about it and get herself famous and and never have to really sully herself with having to deal with the pain and or the fear that a lot of that community would feel towards Candyman. While we're on this subject, we may as well talk about like just the whole idea of making a horror movie with a prominent like black character or at least a character played by a black lead because mm-hmm. i'm sure there's like a lot of discussion about the racial politics of like the new movie and how people thought about it and we certainly seen on social media sites like twitter about how like people don't think candy man is like an accurate or fair representation of black people and I think half the time, maybe it's like when we have the discussions, 
it it can be warranted if like there's some aspects that are like outdated, but other times it may just be like uh worrying about a person that you imagined. Like I, I when thinking about this, I think about all the wrong lessons people could take from this movie and <laughs> maybe someone might watch Candyman think and that's why white people need to stay out of black people's business. But that's mainly just me imagining that. I haven't seen anyone seen that. I'm just imagining someone that's stupid enough to get that message and then having <laughs> epiphany about it. Doesn't mean I have to cave into that person. Like the saying goes, stop trying to pander to your dumbest reader and trying to impress your smartest ones. Right. But also, I was just thinking about like how like, I've been watching a lot of this, these videos by this guy called The Storyteller. He's a black guy from Britain who's a huge fan of the boondocks. And he talks about like racial politics and racial representation in media, mostly from a black perspective. And he released this video a while back, um, about a couple months ago, called Blake is Black Escapism. And... It's basically about just how, like, there's this ongoing discussion about how, like, certain black people are sick of seeing films and TV shows about slavery and about racism and segregation and police brutality. And they just, and they feel, and they might feel a bit uncomfortable about it. And they may think, think like, why can't we just have, you know, uh, films and stuff about black people living and whatnot? And you think, but it's like those shows exist. It's just that, you know, like both can coexist. And I think what these people are asking for is something that a movie and a TV show is probably never going to like do for them. And that's basically erase the stigma of being a black person or a person that is not white in a Western society. Because thanks to the history of black people and the struggles that certain black people have gone to, there's a lot of stigma with, you know, black people in spaces. Like some of that is necessary and other times it's like unfortunate. But the fact of the matter is, is that the mere existence, whether you like appear in a set or like on the news, is going to be political on some level. And... I guess for them, I guess these people, what they're asking for is like, they want the luxury of like a white person who, who's like main problem is like the Star Wars movies aren't as good as they used to be anymore or whatever. But also like, you know, white people don't really grapple with the fact that like most of their ancestors are racist and contributed heavily to like, you know, war and devastation across the planet. So maybe it's like a good thing we have films like Candyman. The way I see it, I think the reason people have problems with it is that most of it is that sometimes it's not done in a creative way. Like um, Lisa Holland's, who um, who was in this movie? Actually, I saw her Wikipedia page went on to direct Harriet, that like movie about Harriet Tubman that basically mm -hmm. inadvertently made it like where she's like a superhero of some kind. Well, at least like the aesthetics of an MCU superhero, from what I've heard. And I guess with with stuff like that, that's what people have problems with. But thankfully, Candyman is like creative enough in many aspects where, you know, it can be good to like show stuff like this and maybe have people think about it, have conversations about it. And those are my two cents. Don't know how well I explained that since I didn't have a script, but that's what I had <laughs> on my notes. I, th I think, I think you hit, uh, honestly, I think you did pretty well. Um, and, and, and I will say that in this film, like uh, Anne Marie is a great character in the sense that uh, she's the one that explicitly says, you know, you know, we're just we're just people, you know, and and perhaps talking about, you know, like I, I don't know 
how to do like there's a lot of conversation as you know you were you were talking about earlier about you know like representation and how how that uh, the optics of certain types of re- representation could reflect badly or well or or what have you um and i don't know i feel like this this movie sure there's some there's some uh perhaps not pleasant representations because it's you know it's honestly it's it's in the projects uh it's in cabrini green which you know granted uh i don't have a full history of that but i'm sure that there were people that were trying to make their living in not so legal ways because they were sort of shut out of a system right that that's what we're sort of talking about um but that doesn't necessarily make them any you know any less uh human or uh you know it, it doesn't make them any less a person than anyone else and Henry is a per- perfect example of that and sadly she is uh repaid very poorly by Helen <laughs> uh in all of this uh even though at the end Helen does manage to to save baby Anthony for her uh, you know, it's not before she makes her go through all the suffering and pain uh, while the baby's like disappeared for a couple of days. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm just it, it's really interesting to me because it's I didn't feel like anyone was trying to sort of uh, be a specific type of archetype in this movie. It's just, you know, a bunch of people just trying to figure shit out uh, and it comes across well. And, you know. At least until uh, until Candyman shows up, and then you know, just people start uh, get dying left and right. Uh, but in any case, uh, I, I guess my question to you, uh, Malcolm, is: Did you do you think, or did you like this movie? I did. I when I finished uh, when I finished it, I was like, that was something. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean. Like if someone did like ask me stereotypical questions about a horror movie, they probably think I was, you know, not very liking to it. Like I didn't think it was that scary. Like mm-hmm. I didn't think like, you know, there's going to be a point where I thought like Candyman was real or whatnot. But I think it had like an interesting direction and like – I'm just finding out the director's name is Bernard Rose, not Charlie Rose. But Mr. <laughs> Ber- Mr. Bernard Rose here, I feel like he had a he, you know, credit to the cinematography and you know the camera movements up when you see from up in the sky and you see the roads go by and just to encapsulate how big the city is. Um. I thought that was really impressive and like a good opening and it has me like, you know, interested in checking out more stuff related to this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I did enjoy it. It's like, you know how like you like something, but you can't really express why you like it. That's what, how I did with Candyman. And I can't really express that way. I was saying like, you know, Oh, I thought the acting was really good. And I thought the soundtrack was good. And, you know, I thought, you know, the, you know, it was good. It was good. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. I mean, I, I, yeah, I would have felt a little guilty if I'd made you watch this to come on and talk about it. And you didn't sort of at least enjoy it a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think that that's, I, I don't know that I have anything else uh to to say about Candyman other than like uh whoever's listening to this uh and they haven't watched it uh or if you have go and rewatch it you know go go watch it or rewatch it as the case may be is my uh my only last thing that I have to say um uh, Malcolm did you have any last thoughts or anything else that you wanted to get out well um other than promotion um the whole like i i guess i would like it's interesting like obviously you wanted me to like have me come on here because of my background and Mm -hmm. i'm not exactly someone that would 
people would think of when they think of like, you know, someone that is African American. Like I grew up in a white majority um, suburbs and I'm definitely light skinned compared to most. Um, But, you know, it's, I mean, that's the thing about like, you know, black people and black media, like not all black media is going to make every black person happy because, you know, they're people and have their perspectives. I guess it's just like one way, you know, what, you know what, I'm going to go recommend a podcast. Um, There's this podcast called Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood. Um, Mm -hmm. It's basically a podcast by, it's a very, it's definitely more popular than this one, but not to discredit your work here, Carlo, but it's, (laughs) It's uh, but it's run by three guys. And the main, you know, gist of it is basically they go and take every film that was released, a mainstream film that was released in the United States that has a black lead. And they basically analyze it from a black perspective. And it gets into some interesting conversations based on the choices because they get to review stuff like, you know, stuff like, you know, Black Panther or all the Eddie Murphy films. But that means they also go and review stuff like Pokemon Detective Pikachu because that (laughs) film had a black lead as well. And I guess for me, just to illustrate my point about the whole can't shake off the stigma of, you know, being black. I suggest listening to their episode Soul. They reviewed Candyman as well, but I I only found out that 10 minutes before we did this. So I didn't have the chance to listen to it. But they reviewed the kids Pixar movie Soul, which released last year. And it goes to some interesting places. Like one of one of the guys goes really deep into it about how it just it made him uncomfortable with the way the film was presented based on the black protagonist i suggest listening to that and then listening to the keno lefter episode that evan did with abdul and whatnot okay um i will definitely check those out and then i'll i'll put those in the show notes as well just for uh our own listeners to check out um did you have anything that you wanted to promote for yourself or was, was that, were those the podcasts uh, or were those podcasts, the ones that you wanted to promote? Um, well, I believe at the time of this release, my article, my first article for blood knife is going to be out. It's my first like paid gig, which is cool for me since I haven't been paid for anything I've written before, but you know, the the people, some of the people running it liked what I had, and I'm in talks to do more, so hopefully I get to do that. It's mainly about, again, with my expertise animation, but just from the idea of, like, you know, what kids are watching and how some things I feel have been sanitized, but also, like, what type of things that kids could need and how we're probably entering this age where like, oh, like if like everyone has to abide by what the U.S. deems as appropriate for children because everything is so streamlined now with all these like services and how everything needs to like line up perfectly. So, you know, there isn't any controversy. So mm-hmm. check out check out that if that interests you in any sense. And like blood like I'm doing more for Blood Knife, I also hope to do more with you, Carlo, because you know, I had I had a good time talking about this movie. Excellent. Well I I'm, I'm I'd be glad to have you back on anytime. Uh, oh yeah, so- I forgot to say I'm Malcolm and I'm Malkman is here on Twitter. That is my username. I'm also fixing up the link tree so I can link to all my other where else I'm at. Sorry to cut you off there, Carlo. No, no, all good, all good. That's uh, you, you self remote. You go for it. Um, yeah. So uh, and and like I said, I'm glad to have you, and I'll, I'd be glad to have you back on uh, at a later date uh, for sure. And um, I mean, if there's nothing else, 
I do want to thank you for for agreeing to come and, and talk and watching Candyman and coming to talk on it, talk, talk about it, even though you are not a horror aficionado. Uh, so it was my thanks again. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great flick, and yeah, uh, I, I've said that a couple of times already. So in any case, folks, uh, if that is all, I do want to thank everyone for listening as well, and. You'll catch our disembodied voices once again next time on Graveside.